there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Okay, welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is a name that many of you will recognize, either from his work with Sports Illustrated, ABC and CBS, or for his outstanding books, which total 11 to date. Armin Katayan, welcome to Next Steps Forward. How are you, Chris? I'm great, thanks. You know, Armin, before we start, I think you and I would both be remiss if we didn't give a special thanks to the person who made today's uh, show possible, uh, the, the person I call the world's greatest neighbor, my, my dear friend, Frank. Yeah, uh, yeah, Frank introduced us, believe it or not, over a decade ago. Uh, so I think you and I would take a lot of flack if we didn't mention him on air today. So just want to give a little shout out. He's probably going to call me and just, you know, wanted to know why his name wasn't mentioned four or five times <laughs> during the podcast. But, but his name over yours, right? Yeah. So for those of you who don't watch television or may not read books about sports, Arma Katayan grew up in Detroit and remains fiercely proud of his Midwest roots and work ethic. An 11-time Emmy award-winning journalist and former chief investigative correspondent for CBS News, Arma Katayan is one of the most widely recognized and finest journalists of our time. From his start as a sports writer at a suburban San Diego shopper in the late 1970s to his role as chief investigative correspondent for CBS News, Arma has always had a dogged determination to share compelling stories and the facts his audiences need to know. We'll delve into his fascinating career path, but in his role as a writer-reporter for Sports Illustrated, Katayan reported on subjects ranging from corruption in college athletics to sports gambling in America. He was with ABC News for several years and spent over a decade in various roles with CBS News. He was a lead correspondent for 60 Minute Sports on Showtime and the chief investigative correspondent for CBS News. Most recently, he served as anchor and executive producer for The Athletic, the digital sports media company. Armin Katane is the author of 11 books, including the number one New York Times bestselling biography, Tiger Woods, which is set to be an HBO documentary in early 2021. Armin, before covering sports, you were a high school and college athlete. Tell us about your upbringing in the Midwest in general, and in particular, your days in college sports. Well, I'm Detroit born and raised. Uh, you know, in the 60s, I grew up with Motown and Bob Seger and, you know, all the great music of Detroit in that, in that period of time. Um, you know, I have that Midwestern work ethic. Um, my dad was always working really hard, and he said to me, uh, probably the best piece of advice he ever gave me was, you know, if you work hard, people will notice, and they, and they have noticed over the years. Um, you know, I was an athlete growing up. Um, I had a love of reading and a love of sports. Those were the, kind of the two, the yin and yang of my early life. Um, played three sports in high school at Lasser High School in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Um, was actually the most valuable player of my baseball conference in my senior year. Uh, on a team that was very, very good, that went 30 games as a high school seniors at, at uh, Lasser High. And um, I went to Central Michigan um, to play baseball. Um, and, you know, I, when I got out there, uh, the first time I ever went out and, uh, you know, I was recruited to go there and I was on a partial scholarship and I went out to shortstop and they were like, I don't know, 12 other guys out there at shortstop. And I'm looking around going, well, what are you guys all doing out here? They're like, oh, I was all state in Ohio. And then I looked around another guy who was all, you know, all regional. Um, 
Rick Tuma. Uh, I'm like, Rick, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, you know, I got recruited. So I'm looking around going, oh, man, this is going to be it's a little different than high school. And, um, you know, I learned a lot there. I, I, um, I ended up starting as a sophomore um, at shortstop, and it was a big deal at the time. And, you know, I was under just you're just under tremendous pressure. I learned a lot about um, what it's like to play you know, kind of big time college sports central had gone to the, at the time, the NAIA finals, the year before I, I was recruited, they had, a, they were probably the best baseball team in the state of Michigan at the time, better than Michigan and Michigan state. Um, and so I played there and, um, you know, when you don't hit, you don't play. And I had a couple of periods of time where I wasn't hitting and there was always somebody right behind me. Uh, I was pressing somebody, somebody was pressing me. And so, you know, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, the weather, uh, I had a girlfriend in California. Uh, so I went out there and I kind of fell in love with California. And I said, you know what, uh, after my sophomore year, I transferred to San Diego State um, in the early 70s and sat out a year. And then I played at San Diego State. I started again at shortstop and at second and at third for uh, the Aztecs with a bunch of great guys uh, that are still, many of them are still my friends today. And um, again, but if you don't hit, you don't play. And I had, you know, I learned a lot about um, I probably had more fun in the 70s at San Diego State with that team than I should have. And if I look back on it now, I, I would say, um, you know, less would have been more uh, at that period of time, more focused on baseball, less focused on girls and, and you know, the sun in, 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 in San Diego. But, you know, failure, Chris, has a lot of, um, there's a lot of benefits to failure. And um, when you fail at something that you really love and that you think you're, you, you're, you know, you think you're really good at it, and then you run into people that are also really good at it at the elite collegiate level. Um, you know, it, 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 that failure to me has really spurned me in a lot of ways for the further successes that I've had, you know, in my life. It's so, um, you know, um, it's a hard lesson to learn sometimes, but it's a lesson that stayed with me for a long time. Well, I'm sure the weather's a little different in Michigan versus San Diego this time of year. So oh, yeah. uh, another good choice. So your college sports days took you from Michigan to San Diego, and there you landed your first journalism job at the Suburban Shopper. Yeah. How, how'd that come about? Well, I graduated from state, actually worked for a, um, a senator by the name of Frank Church, who ran for president in 1976 against Jimmy Carter and Mo Udall and Jerry Brown. And I ended up doing advance work for Senator Church. Um, in, uh, I was 23 years old, and I was traveling around the country. Um, and he won a couple of primaries and I kind of became a big shot on the campaign for a while. Um, we thought for a while he was going to get a vice presidential nod. He didn't. So I went back to San Diego and, you know, San Diego was a, was a tough place to get a job in those days. And nobody left the union or the Tribune and even the suburban papers were stacked and, and stocked with really high, high quality talent. So I went to work, I got a job at the life news, which was a, as you said, a suburban shopper that they threw on people's doorsteps at, Wednesday afternoon, and I was the sports editor, um, only because I was the only person in the sports department, so I could call myself the sports editor. And uh, it, but it was great—a first job. You know, I was writing a column. I was covering high school sports. Um, you know, I learned a lot about um, the responsibilities of being a day, you know, a weekly journalist. And um, you know, fortunately, I was only there for four months when a really big coveted job opened up and. Escondido, California, um, at the Times Advocate, which was a, at the time a Chicago Tribune <clears throat> afternoon uh, daily. That was a very competitive um, 
job opening. And it, every young writer in San Diego wanted that job. And I was fortunate enough to get it. And that really kind of launched my journalism career um, because I was working now on a daily newspaper, um, sometimes writing two stories a day. And you find out pretty quickly, honestly, whether you love the profession or not. You know, you, you think about it in terms of the glamour of being a sports writer, but, you know, the day-to-day -day work, whether it was covering high school sports or San Diego State or even sometimes the Chargers or the San Diego Soccers at the time, you find out pretty quickly whether you really um, you love what you're doing. You mentioned earlier, you know, failure is something that you love, is something you've carried forward. You know, were there other lessons you learned in those first two jobs or even your time as an athlete, as you mentioned, that have carried you through your career or carried you through your career to date? Well, yeah, I think work ethic is one of them. Um, you know, how hard do you want to work? Well, that's the first thing. And then, you know, I've always had great passion for what I do. I was, I'm very fortunate that I found my calling in life, I think, fairly early on, other than starting at shortstop for the Tigers or something like that. Um, I always used to, as I said, I love to, to read. Um, when I was in eighth grade, um, not to sound like too much of a geek, but I, I read the most books of any eighth grader at East Hills Junior High School for boys. They were all sports books, but I probably read, I don't know, a hundred different books. And I was always reading and the love of reading led to a love of writing. And so, you know, that, that love of writing um, led me to writing for the high school newspaper that led me to writing for the newspapers in college that led me to my journalism career. And, you know, I always was, you know, I would set goals. I think that was one of the things that I learned early on from sports, you know, discipline and, and setting a goal, whether it was a team goal or whether it was an individual goal. And I had always wanted to work for Sports Illustrated, like every other guy that was in the, you know, sports writing business in those days. I grew up reading the magazine. Um, it would come to the doorstep on Thursdays. I read it cover to cover. Uh, I was huge fans of the Frank the Fords of the world, the Dan Jenkins, William Oscar Johnson, you know, all of the, the great Tex Mall, the great old writers at SI. And so my goal was to work for the magazine. So I was always sending my clips back to the magazine, trying to generate their interest in hiring me as a reporter, which in those days was essentially a glorified, you know, fact checker. And, um, and lo and behold, um, I left the Times Advocate after two years. And it was interesting because, as I said, you find out whether you really want to love to do something. Um, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a sports writer. So I, I left the sports writing business after two years. And I went to work for a, a PR agency in San Diego, sports PR firm um, called the Phillips Organization. And I, I, my responsibilities were like Ectalon, and, um, which was the racquetball company at the time, and Speedo and things like that. United States Triathlon Series. And I learned pretty early on that I didn't want to be in PR. But that was a good thing for me to learn because, you know, a lot of people in the business go into PR. And, and being in PR for a, a year or so, I learned the other side of the fence. But I also learned that that's not what I wanted to do with my life. And so I was freelancing for the San Diego Union and for San Diego Magazine. And I was making kind of a reputation in town as being one of the better young writers. And I was sending those clips back to the magazine and lo and behold, you know, I got a call. So in 1982, you make the move from San Diego to New York, similar from going to Michigan to San Diego, 
you know, very different environment. And obviously New York was very different back then. Yeah. How'd you make that adjustment? Well, um, long story short, you know, SI didn't offer those jobs um, very often. I mean, I used to read the masthead like it was the Rosetta Stone and uh, seeing if somebody was moving up the masthead or had left the magazine and, and there was an opening and I got a call and there had to be hundreds of people that wanted that job, but I was fortunate enough. This was in February of, um, uh, February of 1982. Um, I got a call and said, we'd like to hire you as a reporter. Um, and I was like, oh God, I, I want to take the job. And I told my wife and you know, Dee, we've been married now 41 years. She was eight months pregnant with our, our now oldest, Kristen. And I said to her, I just got this job offer from, from Sports Illustrated. We got to go. And she says, I'm not going anywhere. You know, I, I'm eight months pregnant. It's, it's winter in New York City. It's, you know, it's David Dinkins and it's the end of days kind of New York um, at that period of time. So I had to turn the job down. And I don't think anybody that I know in the history of the magazine has ever turned anything down is when they offered a job. And so they couldn't believe it. And they said, okay, um, we're not sure we're going to call you again. And I thought, okay, I'm, well, I'm going to live my life in San Diego. Well, sure enough, um, about two months later, they call back and they said, we have another opening and we're not going to ask a third time. And um, will you take the job? I'm 29 years old. They offered $27,000 a year to move to New York City. Um, Dee Dee had a job. We were making 60 grand a year between the two of us, living a very nice life with a house and two dogs and two cars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Um, you know, like you say, next steps forward. You know, you have to decide what you want to do. I wanted to compete against the best. I wanted to see, I knew I could always come back to San Diego and, and work for the San Diego Union and have a career there. But I wanted to compete against the best. And so I said yes. And I went back. Dee stayed behind. I, I lived with a friend in New York for a couple of months. I slept in my office at SI uh, some nights when I really didn't want to bother Jay again to bother him at his house. Um, and um, Dee came in August and we lived in a 482 square foot apartment on 49th between second and third. Um, and I just competed against, you know, some of the very, very best um, young writers and reporters in the business to try to move up the masthead. So, um, and, you know, as time went on, I used to, I used to think about it in terms of the treadmill, Chris, and I'd always just like the harder I worked, you know, the more hours I put in, I would just take that dial and I would just turn it up and see how many people I could knock off the treadmill by the amount of hours that I would put in. And I, and I started to develop a reputation at the magazine of somebody that they could send out and was pretty relentless when it came to the reporting side of things. And I would started to work with the senior writers on some big investigative pieces for the magazine. And after about three years, I became the magazine's top writer reporter in terms of investigations and developed a reputation nationwide, I think, um, for my quote, quote unquote special reporting um, qualities. Well, I'm glad I was never on that treadmill in front of you. So that's uh, <laughs> that's a plus for it me. Was pretty, it was pretty rough. But I, <laughs> and they were some great friends of mine. Ivan Maisel, who, you know, who uh, just, you know, worked for ESPN for years and years. Jill Lieber, who became a senior writer. Um, there were just some really talented people there. And it was, it was just hyper competitive. But you're at Sports Illustrated. I mean, what do you expect? You know, you're, you're competing against the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wasn't afraid of it. 
Uh, and I kind of relished it, but, you know, I was not a, um, you know, I was, I was rarely home, you know, and that was the beginning of that kind of 30 year run of that. Sure. So you go from writing about San Diego sports and culture to investigating and writing for sports illustrated about corruption, college sports, point shaving scandals, sports betting, which was not legal in most States until recently and steroid use and abuse. I'm sure many people in our audience would like to know how you gain the trust of people that didn't really know you to get them to talk about such sensitive topics and reveal their secrets that nobody knows. Well, it's, you know, there's no magic formula. Um, it really is based on trust. Um, when you're doing those kinds of big investigations, um, you know, you're talking to a lot of different people. And I was very fortunate to, to have um, some great, great mentors there. One was Jack Tobin, who was our West Coast, lead West Coast um, correspondent for the magazine. And Jack taught me the, 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 the really the power of use of documents. So whether it was a, you know, a divorce proceeding or a bankruptcy or a filing for a business or something. So when you would go into people, um, there was great preparation that was involved. And I think that gave people confidence that I just wasn't fishing, fishing around <clears throat> and trying to guess as to what, you know, my, my questions were about. So I think that helped in the confidence level. And I, I see what I'm about to say to a lot of young journalists is when you say A, you have to do A. You can't say A and do B or C. And so when you're talking to somebody and you say to them that this information that you're giving me is on background and this is how I'm gonna, we're going to use it in the magazine, um, you're a former coach or you're a former player. Um, and you don't, I never used off the record because off the record to me meant, um, and it means to me, and I think it's fair to say it means it to a lot of journalists, is you can't use that information. You know, you're telling me this off the record, which means I can't use it in any way, shape, or form. So I would always try to talk to people about, well, we'd love to use this information, but we have to use it in a way that you feel comfortable. Because if we get sued, um, we're going to need your help in court. And, you know, knock on wood, um, you know, I've never set foot in a courtroom in my life, and I've never been dis uh, deposed in my life. And that's because I learned very early on at the magazine that, that, that you have to, um, you know, dot all your, you know, your I's and cross all your T's in terms of that kind of stuff. And, and I, I just felt like, you know, when you're doing these kinds of big investigations, it's almost like putting a thousand piece puzzle together. You have to take each individual piece, make sure that piece is solid. And then when that piece interlocks into another piece, that's where you get, you know, big sports gambling stories and big stories about steroids and Nebraska football or whatever, you know, the Tulane point shaving, Phoenix Suns point shaving, um, you know, huge stories that have, uh, you know, enormous implications for the magazine, um, libel laws and everything else. So I was just really careful, but I think it's a relationship business, Chris. If you talk to people and, you know, they can understand that I'm passionate about what I do. And um, I, I, I still have friends that I've done tough stories on. Um, you know, Sonny Vaccaro is one of my very good friends who was one of the, was the guy who really, you know, brought the whole shoe business into college basketball. When, when we did a book called Raw Recruits back in 1990, Alex Wolf and I, you know, we, it wasn't easy on Sonny in that book. We weren't easy on him, but because I was so fair and we were so fair and we were really conscious of, of um, trying to tell their side of the story, 
Um, Sonny and I have remained very good friends um, to this day. And, and a lot of the people that I've had tough stories on, I'm still friends with them. It's because I, you know, I'm not in it to, it's not about me, you know, and I, I say this now, it's like when I talk to people, you know, they say, well, why should I talk to you? I say, well, look, I already have a reputation. All I can do now is screw it up, you know, and, and you're borrowing on my reputation. When I sit down with you and we would say these things at 60 Minutes, when you sit down with me, I'm giving you a certain credibility and cachet by the fact that, that I trust your story enough to sit with you and let you tell it. And, um, and I'm going to be fair about it. And so I think all of that, that quotient, you know, that, that goes into being a, you know, an investigative journalist or just a journalist with a lot of curiosity. I understand it's not easy to make the transition from print journalism to broadcast journalist. But you did exactly that when you made the leap to ABC News. Yeah. Was that a case of right place, right time, or more than that? You know, and how did you put yourself in the position to make that happen and then succeed in that new, as you mentioned before, pressure-filled role? Well, that was a, uh, that was a golden opportunity. It came up. Um, I had kind of come to my, the end of my rope with the magazine on certain investigations that I had spent a great deal of time on and didn't find their way in. I was, I was frustrated. Um, it was the su summer of 1989. Um, people may remember that was the summer of the P. Rose scandal. And ABC News, which was the number one rated uh, nightly news program at the time, was really getting its butt kicked by NBC News in the coverage of the Rose scandal. So Rune Arledge, the legendary Rune Arledge, who was the chairman of the news division and the sports division at the time, put the word out that they were looking to hire a in a reporter, sports reporter, that they could teach how to be a network television correspondent. I had just been at the Olympics in Seoul. Uh, my first television ever was uh, on a Sunday night with Brian Gumble on the opening night of the Olympics, where I kind of was on several times covering the swimming venue. And um, I, I was on television enough during the Olympics to put together a reel that got me an agent. My agent was one of the people that they called to say, we're looking for a young reporter, youngish reporter that we can train. I went through, there were three other people, Chris, to this day, I don't know who they were, that all did audition tapes. My audition tape was an umpire by the name of Dave Pallone, a major league umpire, who eventually came out and talked about the fact that he was gay. And that was the first time that a major league umpire had ever admitted that um, that they were gay. Well, through friends of the family, I got to Pallone and I, that was my audition tape, a, a major league umpire admitting that he was gay, never saw the light of day. It was just shown inside ABC news and getting Rune into one of those meetings where he could make a decision was really tough. He was notorious for never, you never wanting to take a lot of meetings and things like that. They finally got him in this star chamber kind of meeting. They played all the tapes and as the story goes, he looked at all and he said, I want that guy. And that guy was me. And, uh, you know, I get emotional talking about this because it, it, it literally changed my life. I was, I called my agent from a pay phone at the Houston airport. Didi and I, she was pregnant with our second daughter, Kelly. I called my agent and I said, he goes, they made a decision. And I said, what did they say? And uh, they said, they want you. I mean, that was life-changing for me. And um, awesome. So, so I went, to, you know, I go there and I, um, 
this is the heyday of ABC News. And, um, you know, Dick Schaap is there, Ray Gandalf is there, uh, Aaron Brown is there, it's Jennings, it's Koppel, it's, it's a rock star group of, of network television correspondents. And I, <clears throat> I don't really know anything other than I, I can write and I can um, report and I can interview, so I can storytell. I do four stories, I know, excuse me, I do eight stories my first year at ABC News, eight. And I can tell you, I was, they paid me $80,000. So it doesn't take much to figure out that math, how much I was making per story. And, but they stuck with me, they trained me. I got a PhD in television uh, during the eight years that I was there. And, um, and in the end, I was doing, I went from eight to 18 to 32 to 54 to 80 stories a year for both Nightline and World News Tonight and GMA and um, I was, I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm just so grateful that, um, A, I got the opportunity and B, I didn't waste it. You know, that was the most important thing is that when that door opened, I was ready. Um, I was ready journalistically. I was ready, I think, um, emotionally. And, um, and that's really having the confidence, you know, to kind of, you say, take that next steps forward. I was ready to take that step forward then. I had, I had paid my dues at SI. I had done the Olympics for NBC and I was ready to, um, I was ready to kind of step in the big time and to ABC News' credit, they, they nurtured me until I really kind of knew what I was doing. Um, you know, they kept me under the radar until it was time for me to kind of step out into the light. Your 2012 book with Jeff Benedict, The System, The Glory and Scandal, Big Time College Football, exposes what you described as the, quote, complex and perhaps broken machine that churns behind the glamour of college football. What did that machine look like back then? And is it any different today? Well, I think one of the great successes of the system is, is that it broke down the machine into all these component parts. So we, we interviewed and, and profiled athletic directors, head coaches, directors of football operations. We had chapters on, on hostesses and tutors and, um, uh, uh, strength coaches and, and, and a big time recruit. We made it so you could, like I talked about that puzzle, all those puzzle pieces fit together to show you the system. And even the guy that owned the strip club where all the players would hang out or what it was like to be a star recruit or a star quarterback at, at Texas and places like that. Um, so you understood, and it was money that was fueling the whole machine. That was the fuel. And really that hasn't changed. Um, it's still a money game. The system is, is I think, more powerful. Um, it's, there's more pressure. There's more money. Um, you see it, you know, with coaches getting hired and fired um, all the time. Um, but that's the only thing that's changed, really, Chris, is, is that the stakes are so much higher because the payoffs are so much bigger. And I think that the system in 2012 and the system in 2020 is virtually the same, but What's interesting is, is that a lot of what Jeff and I got, Jeff Benedict and I got out of that book, and which really kind of was groundbreaking in many ways, it'd be much more difficult now to do what we did because the schools are much more conscious of letting people inside their programs because so much is at stake. We're going to talk about those payoffs in the second half of our show. We've been talking to 11-time Emmy Award-winning journalist Arma Katayan. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back with Armin Katane. Armin, before the break, you talked about the payoff in, in college football and college sports. You know, we've seen a lot of the last several years in terms of male versus female athletes and what's the right equity. Do you think college players, particularly playing in the big money sports of football and basketball, should be paid? Well, Chris, I think in a lot of ways they are paid. I think you have to look at the overall picture. Um, certainly, you know, they're on scholarship. And those scholarships, in many cases, can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars over the four years. So they're also now getting what's called cost of attendance. So the difference between a scholarship and the actual cost of attendance at a certain school um, could be four or five, six thousand dollars per student uh, per year. So that's additional income that's going into the hands of the of um, scholarship athletes. And then you look at things like Pell Grants, which are provided to minority students to help them with the cost of education. So when people say you know, athletes aren't paid. That's just not true. I mean, they are, student athletes are being paid. So, but then you look at things like, and this is where the rubber meets the road, you know, the whole name, image, and likeness debate that's going on in college sports right now, which dates back to the Ed O'Bannon days and, and you know, the whole EA sports um, and Sonny Vaccaro taking it to court um, 
and the NCAA's vigorous defense and now opening their minds to the obvious answer, which is it's going to happen. Um, whether it happens next year or in the next few years, athletes are going to be able to um, profit from their name, their image, and their likeness, which means essentially their brand. So if you're Trevor Lawrence at Clemson and you can go out and sign autographs um, based upon the value of your signature, you're going to be able to um, you're going to be able to do that, and where that money goes into a trust fund or something is, I think, still to be decided. But everybody's looking at it sort of at the end of a college career. Uh, if you had Tua Tungavailoa at Alabama, um, you can only imagine that if he had gone to one of Nick's Saban's car dealerships and signed autographs there, um, it's all still, I think, very much in the embryonic stage. And I, I do believe. And for the longest time, I was against it. I do believe that athletes should be paid something um, because the money is so big right now. Um, when you look at football contracts for coaches that are in the eight to $9 million range and, and a vast majority of the coaches in the Power Five conferences, whether it's the SEC or the Big Ten or the, or the Pac-10 or the Big 12 um, or the Big Ten, uh, they're making three, four million dollars a year. You have assistant coaches making probably hundreds of assistant coaches making over a million dollars a year now, certainly dozens of them. So should the should the should the those that are responsible for the, the the machine, the system, so to speak, should they be paid? I do believe that they should be. How that's going to happen, I think, is where the Pandora's box is. Because you can only imagine, I mean, recruiting is a dirty business now as it is. It doesn't get a lot of publicity because it's so far underground and it's an all cash business. So to be able for the NCAA's enforcement staff to be able to dig up and dig up um, the kind of dirt that would be needed to make a major infractions case against a power five football team is going to be very difficult because it's so subterranean. So what do you do? Do you offer a kid who's a star fullback or not a fullback, a star quarterback, an impact player, a wide receiver, a linebacker. Do you say to him, um, skip the, the money in the, in the suitcase. We will let you sign autographs at my friend's car dealership five weekends a year. And we will pay you $50,000 every time you do that. Um, so now it's $250,000. That's what's on the table. Well, what, what's going to keep another school from saying, well, you can do it 10 times a year and we'll pay you 75000 I think that's where the, this thing is, there's no telling where it's going to go. And I think part and parcel of it is now with the social justice movement and you're seeing like what you saw in the Pac-12 where the players said enough is enough. You know, they're starting to see the value, um, really see the value proposition for them. And I think... Um, I think you're going to see an entirely different paradigm in the next few years, how it's going to look. Um, I think God only knows, but I don't think you're going backwards here. Yeah, we've been talking about college football for the last couple of minutes. What do we do about equity for women athletes? Many of their programs don't make money, but those athletes work just as hard, you know, if not harder. How should they be treated financially? Well, I think they... I think they absolutely should be treated 
equally. And you, you can go back to Title IX in 1971, the landmark legislation that said equal opportunity for women in sports. It was equal opportunity for women in, in college, but it was equal opportunity for women in sports. It was an absolute landmark piece of legislation. You know, that's now what almost, we're now we're like 50 years. And, you know, you can still argue that women are not being treated fairly and equally on college campuses across the country. Um, I think they should have equal access to scholarships. They certainly have equal access in the major programs now to scholarships and training and facilities and food and all those things. Is the travel the same? No, it's not. Um, are they on charter planes? Um, not to the degree that pro, uh, college football teams, and I almost said it, pro football teams, which they really sort of are. Uh, so, but the problem is, is it's, it's the money factor. In terms of the football teams are the engine that drives the university. The, and the irony here is, is that of the power five schools, there's probably only, you know, let's say the, of the top 100 football programs and basketball programs in the country, let's just say football. There's probably only 12 or so that actually turn a real profit. Most of them are being um, financed by either university funds or student fees, which have become really egregious in a lot of ways at, at, at certain schools where those who maybe not even going to a game are forced to pay to, to, to support the football program. The argument is, why do they do that? Because football teams are the front porch of a university. They're the reason people that um, apply to a school, they're the reason people donate to a school. I mean, you don't, have, you don't have to look any further than what happened at the University of Alabama when Nick Saban showed up. I know for a fact, we live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, you could have you could have put the number of people that wanted to go to the University of Alabama before Nick got there on a blanket, you know, in somebody's bedroom, maybe a half a dozen people. Now, when they send a, a, a person up here into Fairfield County, whether they go to Darien High School, New Canaan, Fairfield, Greenwich, you name it, there are two or three hundred kids and their families in there that want to go to that school. Thirty five percent of the before Nick was, uh, were out-of-state students. 57% of the University of Alabama, it could be more now, that was the last number I saw, could be 60% are coming from out-of-state. It's been an enormous impact. That's why they pay coaches like Nick Saban what they pay him and he's worth every penny of it. The problem is, is when you overpay, um, what gets cut? Well, we're seeing it now in the pandemic. I mean, the amount of so-called non-revenue sports, and they are non-revenue, that are paying the price for the fact that they can't put fans in the stands, that they can't sell merchandise the way they were before. They can't put, they can't pay for the parking and everything else that goes into it. Donors aren't donating like they have in the past because they're not at the games in order to feel the power of the program. This is all going to shake out in the next year or two. And I think women's sports right now, I mean, when Stanford cuts their women's sports, that tells you basically all you need to know. Not all of them, but some of them. A school that has that kind of an endowment, that is part of a regional television network, that has a national reputation, um, starts cutting sports. Uh, I think there has to be a, a reevaluation of, of what's important um, holistically on these campus. And I think that you can't walk away from um, 
equal opportunity and equality for women. And if you do, you're going to pay a price in terms of, I mean, Fresno State just cut their women's lacrosse team because I, I, I have a very good friend, Julie Romanowski, Bill's wife, who is very close with that program. Her daughter played there. The guy that sued Brown University way back in the first Title IX lawsuit, I think his name is Arthur Brown, he just sued Fresno State over a Title IX violation with the women's lacrosse program. And if you think that's the first lawsuit that's going to happen in the next year or so, you got another thing coming. The front porch of a college university, and that's a perfect analogy. And to your point about Alabama, you know, I can't count the number of Roll Tide or the, the big Scarlet A stickers I see on cars driving around. So I think you're, you're absolutely correct in that point. It's incredible what Nick Saban has done. Yeah, it, it is. And, it's, and the thing is, it's been for the benefit of the university. I mean, all that money's not going into the football program. I mean, they're building buildings there because of Nick Saban. They're, they're building new dormitories. They, I mean, I've been down to that school. It's one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. And, you know, Nick's statue is already in front of the stadium, but they should put it on two or three other places on that campus because there's classrooms and there's, there's um, labs being built because of what Nick has done. And Nick and his wife, Terry, have donated, I can't tell you how much money back to the school. Let's switch over to the business side of journalism for a few minutes if we can. Sure. So what is someone, you know, what is Armin Katayan, 11-time Emmy Award winner, tell a kid in journalism school these days? Are they in the right profession? Should they be looking at other options? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the business is changing so quickly, um, you know, from day to day sometimes, hour to hour it changes. Um, what I would say to a young person coming up, it's very different than when I was coming up. I was a, you know, Woodward Bernstein, Watergate baby. Um, there were opportunities for me to go into, as we've talked about, um, you know, sort of the, the minor leagues of, of, of journalism to, to cut my teeth at a, at a suburban daily and um, to freelance it at the San Diego Union and, and the San Diego Magazine. Those opportunities are, um, they're dwindling, um, they're being eliminated right and left. Um, so you have to look at it a different way. You have to say to yourself, okay, I, do I love telling stories? Do I love the, the, the process of, of writing and reporting and interviewing and editing? Um, because if you're in TV, if you want to be in television, you have to do all of those things now. Whereas when I started in television, all I had to do was be the correspondent. You know, I had a camera person, I had editors. Now, when you're coming up through the ranks at a local television, if you can't do all those things, you're not going to get hired. So I would, I would say to people, there's still opportunity out there. Um, the business is changing. It's going digital. Um, you know, you have to figure out um, whether you want to start a podcast or whether you want to do a, you want to do documentary films or you want to you want to cover politics, you're young, follow your dreams, follow your passion. I always say this to my daughters and I've said it to other people. I never chased the money. I never did. I followed my passion. Um, as my wife will tell you, I'm not the guy that you want to call to fix the dishwasher, right? Or if a light bulb goes out, that's about the extent of my ability to fix something around the house. You and me both. Yeah. But that's why we have Frank. Well, no, <laughs> exactly. He needs, he's got a guy. He's, a, he's our guy. But 
if you want somebody to tell a story, then I'm, I'm a guy you want to talk to, you know, because that's what I love to do. And I know the component parts of that. Um, and I've gotten good at it over the years. And so I would say to a young person is follow your, follow your dreams, follow your passion. And if it doesn't work out in journalism, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You've learned how to write. You've learned how to report. You've learned how to tell a story. So whether you're writing an argumentative letter to the phone company because of service or you're telling a story of, um, you know, somebody's birthday party, all of those things that you learn as a journalist are absolutely transferable into other lines of work. And I think that's where, um, that's what you have to look at it because I think now if you're looking to make a, a fortune as a journalist or make a living as a journalist, you, you really have to know that it's going to be a hard road ahead because uh, it's the opportunities just aren't there as they were when I came through. As we come down the home stretch of the show here, let's bounce back to sports. Does the pandemic change anything long-term in pro or college sports, whether it's on the sidelines and the stands, the locker room, the, the corporate suites? Well, I think it's changed. It's been an absolute game changer. Um, it, it's changed almost everything in terms of coverage. Um, I know from being in, you know, having covered this, the NFL from the sidelines um, for years and years, I know what the sideline reporters are doing now. And they're basically disassociated from the field of play where I could move from one sideline to another sideline um, and feel the flow of a game. Um, and I could just walk around in a commercial timeout or do whatever I needed to do. I could hear things and see things that I could report on. Um, sideline reporters now are basically on a little moat in the stands where they have to have the, the coaches and the players come to them. That makes that, that particular job so hard to do. And when you have announcers now, announcing games remotely. I just read today that the Brooklyn Nets announced that their announcers will do both home games and away games from Barclays Arena. So that means they won't travel with the team, which means you really don't interact with the players. And I think that's another thing. And it works both ways. That, that, that is a double-edged sword. Schools have realized that mm, media opportunities can be limited to a Zoom call with a coach or a Zoom call with a player, that eliminates the opportunity to interact with that coach or maybe wait out all the other reporters in the room because you want to ask the coach one particular question for a story that you're working on or something that you're interested in. The same thing with a player. Um, obviously, fans in the stands. It'll be interesting to see when the vaccine is widely available how many people decide they want to put themselves in that kind of an environment? Um, because we still haven't determined whether it's going to be a bracelet or what do they do? They put a star on your forehead or whatever it is that, you, that you've taken the vaccine. And, and as you and I both know, and this is not something that hasn't been discussed, there's a large segment of, of society that, that will not take the vaccine, whether it's for religious reasons or whether it's they don't believe in the vaccine as far as there's they have issues with autism or whether just politically they don't believe that there was a virus to start with. Um, that is all to be um, determined. And so I think the pandemic in some ways has opened the eyes of teams as it is in our own professions um, that you don't have to do things the same way. 
but I think it's going to further limit the interaction between broadcast teams and reporters. And I don't think that's going to be to the better betterment. I think it's going to be the detriment of, of the information flow. So we talked earlier about your number one New York Times bestseller book that you co-wrote with Jeff Benedict, Tiger Woods. You know, there's a lot of questions I can ask here, a lot I want to ask. I know we're, we're short on time, but, you know, just a couple maybe quick ones here is, sure. you know, did you and, and Jeff come up with the idea? You know, how did you, did you approach Tiger directly? What was it like working with Tiger? And, and I guess at the end was what was his reaction once the book was finally published? Well, I'll back up to the beginning. Um, so we had done the system. <clears throat> That, that, that was really started in, you know, way back around 2012 when we, I think we started the book. There had been 10. Um, so when you, when you make a proposal for a book, you know, it's a, it's a fairly, at times it can be a pretty big document. Our proposal for the system was, was 60 pages long. Our proposal for Tiger um, was four pages long. And the reason we decided to do the book was our agent called us up and he said, you know, have you guys ever thought about doing a book on Tiger Woods? And we're like, Tiger Woods? I mean, there's got to be a hundred books on Tiger Woods. What are, you, what are you talking about? And so he goes, well, do a little research and come back and let me know. And so we started to look around and, and there were a lot of books, not a hundred, but a, at least a dozen. But as it turned out, Chris, they were all done on certain periods of Tiger's life. It was right after he turned pro. It was during his great run in the, in the early 2000s. It was certainly there was one or two written after, um, you know, he hit the fire hydrant in, in 2009 and his life, you know, fell off a cliff. Um, his dad had written books. Um, Tiger had written a book. But no one had ever done this, this 360 degree view of Tiger's life, going back to Earl's life, digging into the whole, the mother-father dynamic uh, that was so important in, in, in Tiger's upbringing and, and the influence on Tiger. And so when we, when we decided to do that, um, we told the publishers that we needed three years, which is the longest I've ever worked on a book. And between Jeff and I now, we've done, I think, 25 nonfiction books between the two of us. Um, you know, we had reputations that were built around New York Times bestselling books. And we said we needed the three years because, A, we needed that amount of time to do all the reading that we felt was necessary to sort of start out in the, in the hunt to understand who is Tiger Woods. And to answer your question about Tiger, um, yes, we did reach out um, to Tiger's people. Um, we were about, I'd say about a eight or 10, nine months into the reporting of the book because we really didn't know what we, what we didn't know. And so we wrote a letter to, um, Glenn Greenspan, who was his top PR person, and Mark Steinberg, who was his agent. And we said that we would like to um, explore the opportunity of interviewing Tiger for our book. And, you know, what we got in return was not unexpected, actually fairly predictable, giving their responses to people in the past. But I wrote these words down today because I, I think they're important. Their response was condescending, demeaning, unprofessional, and antagonistic. And it, yeah. And, and, it was, and it, was, it was unprofessional in the sense that you're dealing with two guys that are, have fairly significant reputations as journalists. We came in the front door. We asked you for the opportunity to, 
to at least consider an interview with Tiger. And what we got in response was, was you need to tell us everybody that you've talked to, both on the record and off the record, everything they've told you, and we need a list of questions um, prior to even considering whether Tiger would talk to you. Now, I worked as a contributing correspondent to 60 Minutes for almost 10 years. We interviewed heads of state, whether it was President Obama, President Bush, um, Vladimir Putin, you name them. There was never that kind of request from anybody that they had to see the questions in advance. So what we decided to do, we agreed to disagree with Tiger's people. Now, what did Tiger think of the book? Honestly, to this day, Chris, I don't know because nobody in the golf world that I'm aware of being the golf world uh, has ever asked Tiger about what he feels like um, and how he reacted to the book. I don't believe he read it, but it would be interesting to know whether he's aware of it. I mean, it would be almost impossible not to be aware of it considering it made the New York times bestseller list. But um, you know, we'll see the, the HBO documentary is coming up. You mentioned um, it'll be in January. I'm not sure yet what the dates are. Um, it's mesmerizing. I've seen it. It's a remarkable three and a half hour film broken up into two parts. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Tiger has to say about this, whether anybody asks him about it, because when it premieres on HBO, it's going to be a little harder to ignore than whether it, you know, premieres on the New York Times bestseller list. Armin, you've had an extraordinary career. And accomplishments, impact, durability, and longevity. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us today. You bet, Chris. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning into Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.